Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. Small but growing community of churches in the city of Rome, what was the center of the known world at that time. And this was delivered and preached by this woman named Phoebe, and it's received by this community that was diverse, Jews and non-Jews, people who had lots of experience with God, people who were new to faith, trying to embody this faith in Jesus in the midst of a world that was very difficult, lots of hardship and suffering. So to them and to us, as we read Romans chapter 8, it is a balm to our soul. It's a reminder that you and I have an identity. It's a reminder that you and I have hope and good news that we can cling to when life feels uncertain because I don't know about you, but sometimes life feels hard and uncertain and difficult. And if we can't come to some measure of hope that is an anchor to our soul, then our faith is in vain. Luckily, we have something to build on that cannot be shaken. Over this time in Romans 8, we focused on these truths about who we are in Christ. The first week, Casey spoke. He said, in Christ, we were free from condemnation and freed for love. We've learned the second week that in Christ, the Spirit isn't just changing how we act, our behavior. He's changing who we are our character. We learned that in Christ, the Spirit isn't just changing, helping us know who God is as our Father, but He's giving us a new kind of family as well. We've learned that in Christ, our ache for wholeness is a witness and not a hindrance. We've learned that in Christ, God is shaping our future for that wholeness through our present brokenness. And finally, this past time we spoke in Christ, God is our defender and not our weapon. And so if we want to know God as our defender, we need to de-weaponize, to disarm our faith and allow God to be our Defender, all these things, good news, but we have reached the crescendo of this passage, this moment when it swells up to this beautiful picture of what holds everything together. If you don't know that word crescendo, it's a musical term where everything builds up musically, both with notes and tone and speed. Everything about it moves up and culminates in this moment of great emotion and movement, and that is what Romans 8, 38 through 39, the two verses we're giving our attention to today that I'm going to read here for us again, and then I want to pray. So look with me here on the screen. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, I know I come into a place like this often with a thousand different thoughts and feelings and baggage, and I need to have my heart recentered on you. And I know I'm not alone in that. So, God, 
past our expectations, past our feelings, our hurts, our pains, our joys, whatever we bring into a room like that today, may you meet us here in profound and transformative ways, not because I say anything profound and transformative, but because the Holy Spirit who is present and at work among us takes these words of Scripture and turns something in us towards the wholeness of Christ you have made us for. May you do that today. May you give us the expectation that you're doing that today. May you help us to live into that expectation and respond to that expectation today in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a story this week about someone named Eckhart and Regina Albrecht. They met as teenagers in East Berlin in 1967, their father's high school reunion, and they instantly fell for one another, fell in love. But the only problem was that they were from the opposite sides of the Berlin Wall. She was only able to go with her father to this reunion because of a special permission given by the government. And so in spite of falling in love, these two could not find their way together. For a long time, they wrote letters up until she was 18 years old. Regina would continue to write these letters back and forth to Eckhart. And finally, in 18, at 18 years old, she was arrested after having these letters intercepted. And they were forced then to break off their relationship. Now, this lasted about six months as her family was encouraging her to find other men whom she might be interested in and married because it wasn't realistic to think that she could stay in this relationship with somebody on the other side of the Berlin Wall. But they persisted after those six months. She said, I cannot quit loving this person that I have found that is this, this soulmate for me. And so they continued on, continued pushing forward. At one point, Regina secretly paid to be taken through a tunnel under the Berlin Wall. But on the day that it was about to happen, the police shut down the tunnel and she was unable to do so. Finally, after college in 1971, she paid a man to smuggle her in a modified car that she could hide in across the border into Yugoslavia, then across the border into the free Austria, where she could finally get into the part of journey, Germany that she needed to and marry the one that she had loved, this man named Eckhart. They are still together today. Love in this moment, in this story, overcame an impossible separation. And I share this story, this, this picture from our past, because it gives us an imagination for what I think is both the problem we face today and the promise of what we see in the passage today. Paul, and, and he's writing to us in Romans, he doesn't seem to be questioning whether God loves us or not, but rather, is there something or someone that could stand between that love? Now, if I did a poll today, a theological test, and asked every one of you here, do you believe that God is loving? I bet it would be a 100% yes. I doubt anyone in this room would have any theological problems with saying that God is love. But if we were to be brutally honest and ask ourselves, do we believe that anything could stand in the way of that love? 
that anything could make a distance between us and that love. We would probably, if we were honest, say it feels like that would be true. This word for separate in the Greek, chorizo, which is also spelled like the word chorizo, which I love because I'm a big fan of chorizo, but that's not the Greek. That's the, that's, the, that's the Justin version. It means to leave or to create a distance. So if we're rephrasing Paul's question here in verse 35, what he's asking us to consider is what can put a distance between us and the love of God? What can put a distance between you and I and a God who is love? What can I experience in my life? What can I suffer? What can I do? What can happen to me that causes the love of God to no longer be with me, to no longer want to be near me? This is the question that you and I must wrestle with and be able to answer. What would cause God to distance himself from me? I would love to know how, in your heart and mind, you would answer that question today. You may know all of the theologically right answers, but if you were in your truest form today, being as honest as possible, do you feel like there could be, like maybe there is, a distance? You may not have asked that question out loud, but I think if you're human, you've probably felt it. You've probably wondered, if this happened to me, would God's love go away? If I do this, or if, if I experience this, would the love of God Hold me at an arm's length. And we ask these questions because we have all known what it feels like to lose love, right? Because we're human. We've seen that in spite of our efforts, we've seen friendships that have grown apart. We've seen that in spite of nearness, we've lost loved ones who have been in our lives and have anchored us. We've seen that despite our best efforts, we have disappointed often those who are closest to us, right? We've known lesser loves that have ebbed and flowed with circumstances, that have come and go, gone with, with, with just feelings, fleeting moments, fleeting feelings. That's why we use the phrase to fall in love because it's something that we feel and move into and move out of based upon the chemicals in our brains and bodies according to the world around us. Love is presented as something that comes with how we feel and not something that we give ourselves to. And so if we use that imagination and apply that, project that onto a God, the kind of loves, the lesser loves, the broken loves, the best that we can loves onto a God who we have been told is love, sometimes it's easy to wonder whether his love will fall away as well. It starts with this word itself, love, which there are four 
words for in the language of the New Testament in the Greek. We've talked about this before. C.S. Lewis has written a wonderful book called The Four Loves, which I highly recommend. But if you don't know these loves that we see here in the Scripture in the Greek, there first there's phileo. This is friendship or platonic love. It's the kind of love that we share among friends. To be honest with you, it's the kind of love that the church needs to learn to grow in all the more, we have neglected the love of friendship and growing in those ways. Second, we have storge, which is a familial love. This is loving people like family. It's encouraged in the New Testament to, to love one another like brothers and sisters in Christ. Third, there's eros. This is romantic love, which probably is the closest to our modern conceptions of love. It's romantic, feeling-driven, longing, desire, all of those things, which are not evil in and of themselves, but are often elevated above every other vision of love to be the full thing that we know. But finally, there is this word agape. And agape means unconditional love. This is love that remains when friendships fail. It is love that is still present when families shatter. It is love that does not go away when romance seems to fade. Agape love does not fail or falter. Ken Boa defines agape love as the steady intention of the will to another's highest good. Beyond what we feel at any given moment, beyond what we do in our lives, beyond what has been done to us, agape is steadfast love that continues forward in its commitment to give itself away. And any kind of love that carries that kind of commitment does so at the cost of the one who gives it. Agape love is naturally sacrificial. It says in agape love that I will give you your greatest good with all of my power at the cost even of myself. And the most astounding reality that we find in the scriptures about agape love is that it is not just simply a concept to understand, it is the character of God. 1 John 4:16 tells us that God is agape. God is unconditional love. Not that God simply has love or feels love, but that love is the essence of God's actual being. Now, some folks, some friends that I know would like to jump in the chat right now and say, "Well, wait a second." we got to balance this out with the other stuff too, right? Sure, God is love, but God's holy too. God is anger. There's wrath. And what people do, whether intentionally or not, is they use this argument to try to counterbalance these points of God's character. And at worst, what they do is they make the attributes of God a competition between one another, which is not what Scripture has called us to do. The love of God is not in competition with the other attributes of His character, okay? Amen? The love of God clarifies every other attribute of His character. 
We come to know all of who God is through his love, meaning that his justice is his love. His faithfulness is his love. His anger is his love. His wisdom is his love. His holiness is his love. God does not simply have love for you. He does not simply feel love towards you. God, in his essence, is agape, love steadfast love, meaning that God then is eternally, steadfastly, stubbornly willing our highest good in himself at all times because that's who he is. This is the God we come around to worship today, the God who identifies as agape love. He does not shift like the shadows around us. He does not falter when our feelings fade. God is that love. God is with you in that love. And God is for you in that love. Amen? Amen. And amen again. And amen on top of that amen. Because this is good news. Now, some might say, well, what about sin? I mean, sin is the covenant-breaking rejection of God's love, right? Sin is our attempt to find elsewhere what we've already been given, what we've already been promised, the, the things that we have already received. Sin is saying you've got to find that somewhere else even though you already have it. And here's what I've been taught at least, that, that God in His holiness cannot tolerate the presence of sin. So that's what makes a lot of people scared to even come to church sometimes. Because if God is at church, right, and if I'm sinful and broken and nasty, I need to stay away because God ain't going to come near me. So in this mentality, when we sin, sure, God is loving, but God is loving in a very backpedaling sort of way, right? I love you, but Stay over there. Stay at a distance. God's love is expressed as God tolerating us, putting up with us. At worst, He removes His presence from us altogether when we do. Does this in any way sound familiar or feel familiar to you? Some of us have lived and grown into this theology and have been taught this all of our lives. And this is a mentality, however well-intentioned it may be to try to protect God from our sin, there's a problem with it. And it's the problem with most of our spiritual convictions. They run up against time and time again, the biggest problem with our theology, Jesus. Jesus just ruins all of our best intentions and, and pet projects in our theology. Every time we try to protect God from God or protect us from God or God from us, Jesus steps into the picture. One of the foundational truths that we speak about all the time around here is this idea that God is like Jesus. That if you want to know what God is actually like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. That Jesus represents the character and purpose of God in full. It says it all throughout the New Testament. John 14, 9, Jesus tells his disciples, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. 
later on, Colossians 1.15, it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the one who gives us the image, the picture of what God in his invisibility is. We see him in full in Christ. Again, Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things through his powerful word. So if you walk away with anything today, walk away with the knowledge that if you want to see the character and purpose of God, you can simply look at Jesus. And as you look to Jesus, hopefully in many ways this reorients your picture of what God is like and how God even sees you. Because how did Jesus, the exact representation of God's character, how does he treat the worst of sinners in his day? Think about it. He moves towards them. He welcomes them. He shares meals with them. He deliberately chooses to be present with them. So we must ask then, okay, if God is holy, if Jesus is the full picture of God's holiness and his character... Are all of these sinners making Jesus less holy? No. Not at all. In fact, the people who were most upset at Jesus were the ones that felt like they had to defend God from his actions. The one who felt like in his presence with these sinners, they were sullying his character. When in reality, the holiness of God was not being sullied by this presence of sin. It was being healed by the holiness that was present in Jesus. Jesus, what we see in him is that he is agape, this love embodied with us and for us. How is God in the presence of sin? He is like Jesus. And yet, the problem that we see over and over again, both in the Gospels and, if we're real honest, in our own stories, is that the barrier that we find, when we find a barrier between ourselves and the love of God, it's a barrier that we build. It's a barrier that we erect on our own, barriers of shame, barriers of fear. There's an interesting example of this in, the, in Luke chapter 5, this this picture of Jesus inviting the disciples. He's calling Peter for the first time as a disciple. Peter is fishing with his fellow fishermen. They're coming in after a long night of fruitless fishing. They've caught nothing, and Jesus standing on the shore maybe should be minding his own business, but still has something to say to him. He says, hey, why don't you cast your nets on the other side over there? And Peter is reluctant, as he is, because he's a pro at this, and he knows how to fish, but Jesus says it. So he's like, all right, whatever. Let's throw the net on the other side. He does. And of course, they pull up so many fish that the boat begins to sink because he listens to Jesus. And Peter there on the shore, instead of joy and adulation, instead of praising God in front of everyone, says something strange. Here, look at this in verse 8. In response, Peter says, go away, with, go away from me. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Notice Jesus doesn't say in this story anything about Peter's behavior, about Peter's sin. He only says, cast your net on the other side. And Peter's response is, go away from me, Lord. I'm sinful. 
Peter, like Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah 6, he sees his own sin in light of who God is. And the first thing he says is, go away. I can't be near you. I can't be near you in my shame and in my sin, God. You are so holy and loving. And because of that, because I know me, I got I to gotta push you away. I don't want you near me. And honestly, I understand Peter here because I understand and I bet you understand what it feels like to let shame convince you to push God away or let shame convince you to push everybody else away. To push you away from the very thing your heart is crying out for. What I have learned over and over again, both in my journey and in the journeys of those I've walked with here in this church and beyond, it's one thing to believe that God loves you, and it's another thing to actually allow yourself to receive that love, to open yourself up to it. It is so easy to believe that God is love and yet hold that love at a distance, to be satisfied in our theology and to allow shame to protect us in ways that are actually putting up walls from the thing that our heart longs for the most. Again, there is almost zero disagreement among this room that God is love, right? But believing that God is loving and even believing that God loves you today, those are two different things. That's why I really empathize with Peter in this story, because there's this temptation to turn away from everything that you want, to turn away from everything your heart is actually crying out for and longing for because you feel like you have to protect God from you, protect others from you. Reminds me of this book Kurt Thompson wrote called The Soul of Shame, a phenomenal book which speaks to this power, this urge that we've all experienced to build these walls. He writes, when we experience shame... We tend to turn away from others because the prospect of being seen or known by another carries the anticipation of shame being intensified or reactivated. However, the very act of turning away while temporarily protecting and relieving us from our feeling ironically simultaneously reinforces the very shame we are attempting to avoid. We feel shame and then we feel shame for feeling shame. It begets itself. I want to ask for a a show of hands, but I bet that feels familiar to some. Shame is happy to let you believe that God loves you, but will do everything in its power to convince us that we could never experience it for yourself. Shame is happy for you to theologically assent to the idea that God is love if we also believe at the same time just as powerfully that we are unlovable, that we are irredeemable, that we are too far gone. I am convinced, my friends, that nothing does more to make us feel like there is a distance between us and God and us and others than shame. It's why Satan is called the the accuser of the brethren, because his primary strategy in our life is to whisper these lies about ourselves and lies about one another that we will never be worthy of a love we have already received but somehow cannot bring ourselves to open up to. 
Maybe you've known those whispers of accusation all too well. I know I have as well. Maybe that's a battle that you have fought far too long, and, it, and I get it. And I was thinking this week even, as much as we have emphasized community and relationships in the church, and oftentimes community is very hard. It's really difficult, right? If you're finding community easy, you're probably not doing it. You're probably just gathering a crowd. And how often when community fails in the church, the first thing we point to is strategy. Is, are we doing it right? Is it the right form? Are we reading the right book? Are we doing the right stuff? But I would go further and say that maybe one of the contributing factors of the failure of community in the church is that we are scared to death that if people see us for who we really are, they won't love us. So we stay at a distance. Or when we get together, we put up a wall because it's scary being seen. You're afraid that I'll be known and not loved, not accepted. Which is why the gospel for us today, and why the good news of this love for God is not just a vertical issue, not just a between us and God thing. It is a very much a horizontal relational reality for when we receive this love of God that tears down the walls of shame between us and Him. It also helps us tear down those walls of shame between us and one another that I can be seen and known and loved with people even in my brokenness and know that I will be loved like God. What we see in the cross of Jesus is that not only does He bear our sin and our shame, He bears it in Himself. He embodies it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes as far as saying that Jesus became sin for us, meaning that love, agape, bore our sin. Agape took our sin in itself to redeem it. What the cross does is so radically transform the nature of our reality that love now has been redefined through the cross. First John 4 speaks this, says this is how God showed his agape among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is agape. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. As we move into a time of communion, I hope you know that this is our hope yesterday and today and tomorrow and for eternity. That the love of God has not stopped pursuing you. And what distance there has ever been between you and God, it has been filled and finished in the cross. The cross has removed every single barrier between ourselves and the love of God that has continued to pursue us in our brokenness. The challenge for us today as we move into worship together is to receive it. Is to allow the love of God to let those walls of shame between us and one another begin to crumble, that we might step into the fullness of the love that we can have for one another, to receive it today, the agape steadfast love for you, where you are, as you are. That is who God is with you and for you. Let's pray.
Jesus in very simple, ordinary rooms like this. You meet us supernaturally. You speak to us wholeheartedly. You invite us to be seen and known and loved. God, there is no great strategy or plan. What we have today is not a song or magic words to stir you up, to get you to show up, to get us to feel, because the truth is whether we feel it or not today, you are present in love for us, with us. You are steadfast, moving towards our good in all things. For those of us who do feel that today, thank you. But for those of us who feel numb, who feel weary, who feel like they're on the outside looking in, may you meet us here with a love that does not let us go. Meet us here. Jesus. Amen. We celebrate communion as we do every week. We have elements here on the table in the back, on the lobby as well. We do this as a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us in the cross, reconciling all things to himself. The bread representing Jesus' body, broken for you, broken for me, his blood shed for my sins, for your sins. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. Every time we take these elements, we do so remembering that we have given our sin to Jesus and he has given us his righteousness in all things. We are rehearsing the good news. We are rehearsing our future here in the present by these simple acts of remembrance. And so we're going to have a time here just to worship and prayer here in a few minutes, but let's respond to what the Lord is speaking to us here today.